0: If you know that you've got grandkids and, you know, you're talking to someone, they say, well, I've, I've got these grandkids and they're quite lovely and, and then you carry on the conversation. They say, hey, did I tell you how many grandkids I've got? Yeah, yeah, you said that and how, did I show you a picture? Oh dear, you have, you know, um, but they tend to repeat themselves, right? Because they, they're passionate, they love it. Well, it's interesting because Paul comes full circle today in the book of Titus and hits on two themes that we've seen again and again. And it's this idea of good works, good deeds, as well as addressing these false teachers there on Crete. And so, what we're going to see today is that Paul once again hits on this theme of good and bad, and even now some ugly stuff. So, the way in which we're gonna pivot through this text is on the good the bad, and the ugly. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Peter thinks I'm looking at him every time I say ugly. No comment. (laughs) No, just kidding. kidding. That's right. Your wife makes you look good, dude. Yeah. Plus, she's got a Harvard, you know, so you you can claim you went to Harvard, right? Yeah. Maybe you did. All right, so that's, that's where we're headed, the good, the bad, the ugly as we wrap up. This has been such an encouraging, encouraging, practical uh, letter, um, how fortunate our church has been to gather together every Sunday and hear this preached, how fortunate you have been to hear these gospel truths, how fortunate you are, if you're in Christ, that you have been saved by Jesus. And so how fortunate you are this morning to be here, to hear these truths. So let's, let's uh, as blessed people, really, let's, let's ask that God would continue to bless us as His Word is open and preached, yeah? Lord, we thank You again for this privilege, for this opportunity to, to gather around Your Word, and we pray that, Lord, that through this thing called preaching, through the voice of a mere man... Would you conduct that divine dialogue in our souls? Lord, what we have not, we ask that you would give to us, what we know not teach us, and what we are not make us. For Christ's sake, amen. All right, so this is a trustworthy saying. Are you ready for it? What I'm about to say is true. Now, if if I say that, it seems like what I'm I'm about to say is true. I haven't quite said it yet. But I could also say that same phrase, this is true, if I just said something, it kind of sounds a bit egotistical, but if if I say, what I just said, and I make a statement, and that is true. You still with me? So Paul opens up, well... At least we're opening up to Titus, and he said, "This is a trustworthy saying." He says that about five times in his works. This is a trustworthy saying. This is something. Is there a? I, I try to think. Is there an Aussie phrase like that? Spot on. Would that be? Is there another? Is there a better phrase? True blue, true blue, <laughs> true blue Aussie black. Right. I used to have a shirt that said that on the you know on the side. Why I had that shirt? Da na. But but I had that shirt. So. Here's my question for you. Here's your, since you're awake, at least at this point. um, When Paul says this here in in verse 8, can you see that? There's a trustworthy saying. The question I have for for you is, is is that statement, is it looking forward or is it looking backwards? In other words, is it introducing an idea or is it concluding an idea. Does, does it go with what he just said in verses four through seven? Or is it letting sort of letting us know what he's about to say, setting the rig up in verses eight through 15? Honestly, I I don't know. I'm I'm prone to err on that it's actually coming off of what he just said. Um, in other words, he saved us, right? All the the verses we, we learned about last week, and he says, that's a trustworthy saying. But, I mean, it's not that what he's just about to say isn't trustworthy. So, I mean, you, I suppose you, you could cut it either way. Whatever the case, though, Titus still has a job to do. You see it there? He's to teach Christians to think through the implications of their faith, insisting on this. Do you see that? See the word insist? He's to insist that their belief matches their behavior, that good belief should produce, should have a result of good deeds. As believers, in other words, that's what they are and that's what we are to be engaged in. That is what they are to put into practice. That's what meant to occupy their time, a life marked by good works. I wonder if your tombstone could read that. Here lies, fill in your name, and some of you will be with the Lord before sooner than later. Seriously, I don't say that in a cheeky way, just, that's just a reality. Would your tombstone read, would your people say at your funeral, a life marked by good gospel deeds? Now, that's pretty heavy, right? And you might think, well, I mean, might say that. I'd also want to give a little footnote on the side of that tombstone that says, yeah, and I wasn't really perfect and da 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 right? But I mean, that's pretty heavy. I mean, I'm just curious when when you hear that that's what Paul, that's the thrust there, right? He says that let, our, let us devote ourselves to good works. Many people on the coast right now are devoted to their leisure, devoted to sport, devoted to whatever. But Paul's saying, I want you to be devoted. I want you to be switched on to good works. I wonder when you hear that, I wonder sort of where you're Mine goes there, like what are these good works? What are these good works? Well, broadly speaking, they're the overall requirement to do what is righteous and loving. You'll notice they're described there as excellent and profitable. But that still doesn't really answer, I guess, what these good works are. They're described as excellent and profitable, but what are they? Like good, good deeds, good works, well, they, they sound good, but again, if you have your Bible there, Paul actually gives us some tangible, practical, concrete examples. Look at verse 12. Look at some of these examples of, of good works. He says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to, notice, spend the winter there. Now, Nicopolis was a seaport on the Mediterranean, so that means it's going to be a warmer spot. Probably not a bad idea for Paul to decide, hey, if if winters are coming, right, why not head to Queensland? Don't go to Victoria. (laughs) Go someplace warm. And what does he say here? He says, look, he addresses Titus directly, and he says, I, I, I'm going to send these two blokes to you. Like, don't, don't come to me until these two blokes show up. But when they do, I want you, yes, you, to come back to me here at this seaport village here in uh, called Nicopolis. Okay, great. What's the tangible... Expression then of a good deed. Well, it's friendship. It's it's support. That's a good deed. It's it's friendship. It's it's support. And notice, keep reading in verse thirteen. There's a, there's another example. He says, "Do your do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing." So I'm going to send these guys and once they show up, then you're to come and don't forget to grab Zenith and Apollos, two other workers of mine, and listen, when you send them off, make sure their bags are loaded down with stuff, that they lack nothing for their journey. Okay, to my knowledge, the churches on Crete weren't megachurches probably pretty small, yet this little Christian community is called upon to do what? To open up their wallets, to open up their handbags, to, to share. So what's the good deed? Can you spot it there? It's generous giving. Now, I find this very practical and comforting because when Paul says, I want your life to be full of good deeds, you might hear that and go, oh man. What do I got to do? I mean, where do I even begin? And Paul's answer is simple. You must be willing to be burdened for others. You must be willing to sacrifice for other people. That's it. Notice verse 14. We're to devote ourselves to good works by meeting, notice their urgent needs. Urgent needs. Now, now, consider this. I was tossing it around in, in my head this week thinking, well, what does that even mean, urgent needs? Well, consider Paul's day. They didn't have Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and they didn't have access to websites like GoFundMe. So what was an urgent need then? Well, it was someone or something within your small circle of family, friends, Neighbors who needed your assistance. So church, when you think about meeting needs or doing good works, in what ways are you doing that? In what ways are you sacrificing for others? In what ways are you putting your shoulder to someone else's burden and helping them? How, how might you go about doing it this week, for example? I mean, honestly, maybe it's something as simple as making a meal. Now, who do I make a meal for? Come talk to Dan and myself. We have an inside track about what's going on in this church, believe it or not. Seriously. Say, so I, can, I, can, I think I can do that. Come talk to us. Maybe it's babysitting for somebody, minding someone else's kids. Uh, maybe it's sending an uplifting card to someone in this church or, or an email. Uh, perhaps it's just your presence with somebody this week. You know, sometimes the most meaningful thing we can do for a brother and sister in Christ is simply just to be there. Be there in the pain, be there in the hurt, be there in the struggle, be there in the mess, and just listen and empathize and pray with them. There's a lot of urgent needs all around you. Do you know that? Well, I, I reckon if you just did a little bit of probing, you might be shocked. You might be honestly shocked to realize how many urgent needs there are surrounding you. Do you want your tombstone to have that devoted to good deeds? Well, we need to be proactive. Yeah, well, no one's ever told me they needed a meal. Be proactive. Get out of your own skin for a second. Look around to the other people. How can I help? How can I support? How, how can I have a life marked by good deeds, being urgent to meet these needs for others? So that's the good. But what about the bad? Remember the good, the bad, the ugly? What about the bad? Well, that comes in verse 9. Notice what he says. He says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. All right, let's pull back for a second, because there's a contrast here. Verse 8, notice that's what he's to insist upon. Verse 9 is what he's to Avoid, you with me? Do this, don't do that. Verse eight is the good, verse nine is the bad. Verse eight are things that build up, verse nine are things that tear down. Verse eight is profitable, verse nine is unprofitable. Can you hear the contrast? So what's he saying? We need to be occupied with the gospel and good deeds. That's what needs to buy up our time rather than wasting our time in pointless controversies. Wasting our time in these pointless controversies. Now, that said, we don't really know the explicit details of what these controversies were about. They had something to do with Jewish ancestry and ideas about tiffs over the Old Testament law. Well, we don't really know the details there. What we do know is what Paul thought about these arguments. What does he call call them? He gives them a label. You see that? See that in verse 9? They're moronic, literally there. It's not a word you hear. It's not a very nice word. You don't hear that today? Guy's a moron. It's not very nice. But it's actually a very fitting word for the types of debates these teachers were having. For instance, the Jews love to talk about their family heritage, their lineage, and the false teachers knew this, so they capitalized on it. They likely got a mob around them and, and began getting the people's ear. Well, how did they do that? How did they get this? Maybe it was a mob, maybe it was a small group, whatever. They had this, enough followers around them, and what would they do? They Well, they began launching into all kinds of speculations about people's backgrounds and why this played a vital role for them spiritually, Apparently, this was a popular pastime in Crete, and they engaged it, and they expected others to listen to their fancy biographical tales. So Paul tells Titus, and the church there, you guys need to dodge these discussions. Seriously, don't engage them on their terms. If you see it happening, if you hear about it, do an about face, right? If you hear it, like, don't, don't enter into that. That Twitter battle. If you hear that, if you know this is just gonna be hot and it's, gonna, it's not gonna be any light, it's just gonna be heat. You with me? It's a the difference between light and heat. Light's actually like you're going somewhere with the argument. He's saying that's not just gonna happen, it's just gonna be a dead end. You need to just about face and turn the other direction. Why? Because at the end of the day, these arguments, they're vain, they're empty, they are worthless, he says. You see, Paul is concerned that the local church there on Crete not becomes something like a debating society where the apostolic teaching is simply viewed as one of many valid options. No, no, no. The local church isn't there to debate about the possibility of absolute truth. It's there to proclaim what is absolutely truth. Sure, people may have legitimate questions, but that's not the point here. He's not saying if someone has a question, you just squash them. Now, the point Paul's making is, look, Titus, bro, you better make sure that those who oppose God's word do not get a voice or a platform to proclaim these crazy imaginations and ideas that they have. When God's people are assembled, they're meant to be taught properly and built up and not waste their time in speculation. And these fanciful, biographical genealogies, nor are they to waste their time in having an aji baji I'm getting real Aussie this morning. I I never heard that term until I came here, but he's, but aji. am I saying that right? Whatever. (laughs) Someone say it for me. Clark, can you say it for me? Thanks. No (laughs) No one on the central coast says it. Yeah, I know. You guys will get it in a couple of years. Yeah. So in Sydney, they say it, and then it drifts up here, and you guys will get it eventually. So um, argy-bargy, what's the uh, whatever? No one says it. Does that mean like, I mean, it's having like having like a, a bit of an argument. So what does he say there? He says, I don't want you to have an argument over these, over these peculiar Old Testament laws. You see that there in verse 9? Come again to verse 9. He, he's saying, um, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Again, we don't know the details regarding these quarrels. They're, the nature of these debates isn't fully known. There might have been people focusing on Old Testament minutiae. Uh, might have been some extra biblical stuff that they were pulling in and, and making it bigger than Ben-Hur and then having a big debate about it. We, we just don't know. We're not sure about the content, but the results made clear. You see it? It's unprofitable and, what, worthless. They were causing pain and disunity in the body of Christ there. Okay, pause. I doubt this church is going to drift into Jewish genealogy discussions and debates about Extra biblical Old Testament stuff, and if that's relevant or not. Like, I don't see David Dundas and Raynard getting into an ajibaji about this stuff (laughs) after church. I just don't. Might happen. Be interesting. I got a lot of cool books on Second Temple literature. If you brothers want to talk about that, but (laughs) so, but I just don't see that happening. So then, how 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 is this going to land for us, our church? Well. I'm a bit worried we can hear this stuff and we might be tempted to believe that all controversy is bad. Basically, the takeaway from this is that all theological controversy is to be avoided. All doctrinal debate should be dismissed. I mean, sometimes people will honestly use these verses as a proof text for that. They'll suggest that simply caring about doctrine or being passionate about sound theology is a bad thing. Essentially, as Christians, we ought never to engage in controversy, they'll say. But that's just simply not biblical. I mean, it's helpful to explore and consider the hard truths of Scripture. This text is not saying that all theological debates should be avoided. I mean, consider Paul. He was engaging in controversy all the time even with Peter, do you remember? He rebuked Peter in Galatians over a doctrinal issue. Or, and then he's writing to churches in Corinth, and Thessalonica, and he's correcting them. He's, he's, he's having a debate. Or consider Jesus. I, I mean, he's probably the most controversial character in human history. Not to mention, if you look at any Christian hero... Like if you've been coming to equip, look at any Christian hero from any century, in any place, you can pretty much guarantee that that person has engaged in some level of controversy. There was something that they stood up for that the people didn't like, right? The Roman Catholic Church had gone off the rails, so Luther says, that's it, taking the 95 theses, nailing it to the door of church in Wittenberg, right? That's that's a controversy, and it was a needed one. There was always, I mean, think any person, not, not just Luther, but any person in human history that we look to and we go, that person's great, there was something in their culture that they were trying to correct, and rightly so. Listen, doctrine is not the problem. Doctrine is not the problem. Doctrine is not the problem. I say that, and I know what I'm saying that, and um, I'm, I've got to refrain here. Discussion, even disagreement, is not the problem. So what is the problem then? What are some characteristics of bad controversy? Like what, how do we get the spirit of that, so to speak? What are some things that we should, some pitfalls that we should avoid? Well, we need to beware of spiritual speculation. Isn't that kind of what he's talking about? This idea of they're, they're speculating about these things? We need to beware of spiritual speculation. I mean, some people really want to figure out, for instance, you know, what is heaven going to be like? What's heaven going to be like? That's that's not a bad thing. In fact, the scriptures give us some beautiful images about heaven. But people tend to get very interested in books written about heaven. Have you noticed that? Particularly when someone supposedly dies and goes to heaven and then comes back and writes a book about it, well, they're quickly just swallowing all that up. Or I've met Christians who are really into dreams. What does this dream? What's this dream about? And how does that connect with my life? See, all this becomes very speculative. I've seen other believers who become fixated with with angels or with demons or demonic territories or generational curses. Very speculative stuff, friends. And we have to beware of those things. We're not careful, that can just become the focus of our entire Christianity. Spiritual warfare, whatever it might be, and that becomes the focus rather than the cross of Christ. So beware of that and beware of theological hobby horses. So if one problem is the mystic who drifts out and likes to think and speculate. The other problem is the person who is, just has a hobby horse. I mean, they manage to turn every verse into their own liking. Well, clearly John 3.16 is about the end times. And clearly John 3.16 means that the PM is the Antichrist, right? What the heck are you saying? These types of people are engaged in controversies where there's no substantial answer. There's no desire to come to a conclusion. They seem to argue just for the sake of arguing. They're just, you know what, even if they weren't a Christian, they would just be annoying and combative as people. Look, a foolish controversy has no real point to it. It doesn't actually lead people to know God better or to love Christ deeper. The only result is that you feel better about yourself compared to others. That, dear friend, is a foolish debate. It's moronic. It's bad controversy. And it'll distract you from the main thing, which is Christ and the cross. So, the good, the bad, and verse 10, the ugly. Verse 10, the ugly. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Whew, that's hot. So here we have someone who stirs up division or promotes it by their unbiblical views. And because of their sinful influence, they're, they've created, they're forming these separatist groups within the body, these little disgruntled cliques, if you like. That's what's going on. Well, what are we supposed to do about that? Have you ever seen that happening in a local church? I've I've seen it happening at this church when I first got here my first year. So what are, what are we supposed to do about that? Well, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Well, we have, we have instructions, really clear instructions. The first step is to confront them, right? And, and what's the effort there? It's an effort to persuade them, to show them, to help them see they've got a blind spot, they're in error, and we're trying to help them put them back on track. And God willing, it ends there. But if not, if this first warning falls on deaf ears, if it's met with resistance, you give it a second go. You see that? Tell them one last time about the seriousness of this guy's disunity. And the assumption here is that a second warning comes with a little bit more force, by the way. There's a lot more weight behind this one. There's more riding on this warning. There's a seriousness to this final stage. But even if this, this second warning, leads nowhere, if a person refuses to listen to the first, second, and third warning seen in Scripture, well, three strikes, you're out. Have nothing more to do with him. You know, the first time you got a wart on your foot, this is for you, Jenny. Treat the wart, okay? If that doesn't work, try freezing it and that doesn't work, lance the thing off. (laughs) Cut him off. That person is a cancer in your church. It is going to eat through the church. Well, that's not very nice. Jesus said, for those of you who are without the first sin, cast the first stone. No, no, no. This is Christ's church. He cares about its unity. He cares about its, its precious to him. And besides, verse 11, what kind of fellow are we dealing with here? It's not just someone that made a, oh, I just made a simple mistake and they cut my leg off. No, 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 no. Look at verse 11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. The word self-condemned here has the idea of being curved in on itself. In other words, this divisive person Is not like normal people who disagree and then move on. They let it go. No, 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 no. The divisive person thrives on discord. He thrives on quarrels. He loves disputes. They will disagree and continue to disagree. They will continue to argue the point. They will continue to stir up division. Why? Have you met someone like that? You've been. In, uh, I have. Because why? Verse eleven. They are self-condemned. They are warped, like a, a, a. you know a wood that is warped? It's just. It doesn't. It's bad. It's warped. They are always coming in on themselves. They're always coming back to themselves. Always coming back to the same conclusion. So Paul says, look, you've ignored this guy. You've ignored these, these blokes in verse 9, and that was good. You've warned him twice in verses 10 here, and he still doesn't listen to the church. So what then? Reject him. Get rid of him. Have nothing to do with him. Excommunicate him. If you mess around with a divisive person, you will get division in the church. If you mess around with a divisive person, if you just let them roam around because you're too much of a coward, you have no spine, whatever it might be, or you you, you just let them roam around, you know it's going you're gonna instead that person, like a cancer, is gonna make it that church divisive. And the unity of the church is so precious to the heart of God, he will not tolerate a divisive person. He will not allow his body to be destroyed by such a person. Church, listen clearly. We need to rebuke such people in the name of Jesus. It will not be tolerated. We're not going to have a bar of it at this church. Now, I can't end there whole Titus series. So come with me to the last verse. Because I, I, there's a closing final verse in Titus. It's a, it's a benediction. And I think it rightly draws our attention to grace. Notice what he says. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all, or y'all, if you want to say it that way, because it's the second person pearl. It's not just you, it's, it's with every one of you. Grace be with all of you. Grace is the unmerited favor of God that was kindly extended to us, but certainly not because of us. It's not based on the goodness of us, it's based on the goodness and kindness of God, Remember last week? He saved us. It is Christ alone. It is His grace alone that saves sinners and sanctifies the people of God, all to the glory of God alone. And so Paul prays for God's grace to once again be realized and recognized in and through the heart of these Christians on the island of Crete and here on the central coast for our church because it is only by grace that we are saved and grace that we are set apart and sanctified and grow because it is this grace and this faith in Jesus that is the determining factor in our relationship with God and where you and I will spin eternity it is by grace through faith twas grace that brought us safe thus far and it was grace that leads us home may this grace be with you all church twas grace that brought us safe thus far and grace will lead us safely home Do you know this grace, dear friend? I don't mean do you know about this grace, but do you know this grace? Because you are a sinner and so am I. God is a savior and grace is our only hope. Friends, may this grace be with you all. Let's pray. Lord, again, what a privilege it is to think about your character, your work in Christ on our behalf. Lord, what a privilege it was to study this book of Titus. Lord, you are not silent about the ordering of your church. You have made these things absolutely clear in your word. You have spoken. We pray that we would be a church here on the coast. Lord, many of us in the past would have been marked by lying, being lazy gluttons like the Cretans. But Lord, when your kindness and your grace appeared, transformed us. We pray that we'd be people that say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled and upright lives. May grace mark us. May grace, your grace, bring us all the way home. We ask this in Jesus' name.